Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cabot Cove Gazette, your favorite Murder, She Wrote podcast in hours two. I am your co-host, TJ West. And I'm Bridget Keys. And we are so happy to be joining you for the second episode of the second season, entitled... Uh, Joshua entitled- Peabody Died Here. Yes. Possibly. Yes, Joshua- Possibly. Yes, sorry. That was a goof on my part. So, Bridget, why don't you give us a summary, since you so nicely interjected with the title? I'm probably going to cut all that, so I'll just have me saying the title. So say it again. Do you want to just do the whole intro again? No, just say, like, why don't you give us the summary? Oh, why don't you give us the summary? Still, like, unofficious. Give us a summary. Um, okay, so we are finally back in Cabot Cove, which is really exciting because the last time we were in Cabot Cove was Murder Takes the Bus, where we weren't even actually in Cabot Cove. We were just, like, leaving Cabot Cove. Um, and uh, otherwise, it's been a really long time, and it's so exciting to be back here. And now I sound like I'm giving some sort of speech. I'm so excited to be back. It's so good to see all of you. So many, so many f- familiar faces here. <laughs> all the little people. I never forgot you. So um, in this episode, we see that a high-rise is hotel is being planned for development on the waterfront, and people in the town are protesting it. We learn that the plans were sort of sneaked through the city planning commission when people were, or the zoning commission when people were on vacation. Um, so there's a lot of animosity in town about this. And of course, construction halts when a skeleton is found at the construction site, which we assume is the body of Joshua Peabody, the town's legendary Revolutionary War hero. So that's one thing that's happening. And we have to like decide, you know, like do all this investigation onto the skeleton to find out if it really is Joshua Peabody. Second, a thing that's going on is that um, a news crew has come to like sort of film the protests and the discovery of the skeleton. And they've taken footage of a guy in town who runs the antique store who was a protester during the Vietnam War and has been accused of bombing a federal courthouse and has been on the run ever since then. And now the FBI is hot on his trail. So there's actually there's like a lot happening in this episode, Teach. And we learned that the guy who's running the construction company um, uses subpar materials and takes a lot of shortcuts and hasn't been able to be sort of criminally prosecuted for his actions, even though people have died on the jobs. And he's ultimately murdered by the daughter of one of his, you know, former employees who died, who is the journalist who comes to town to investigate. There's a lot of stuff going on. There is a lot of stuff going on. And so let's start then with we could do a little bit of the guest actors because we have a few interesting people who show up. Well, um, actually, could you start with um, talking about that? It's also Seth's premiere because I forgot to say that and I've talked too much. Oh, yes, of course. So obviously the most important thing about this episode is the introduction of Seth Hazlitt, Jessica's BFF and everyone's favorite curmudgeonly doctor um, here in Cabot Cove. And I actually find this character so fascinating for a number of reasons. Obviously, he'll be in this show from now until forever as Jessica's partner in crime. But I also loved the opening, sh- like the establishing shot we get of his home office. Like, you know, it's, you know, Seth has it, MD or whatever it says. And that really struck a note with me. And I know it seems kind of like trite, but 
it's kind of evocative of a prior period of like medicine, like where people did have their sort of the town doctor that everybody went to. And he reminds, I, I bring all this up because my grandma had a doctor who basically had an office just like that. And so it was just like, wow, you know, this is one of those t- like little time capsules that Murder, She Wrote really excels at, you know, reminding us of what life was like in previous periods. I too made note of that establishing shot, but for me, what it, um, its significance was that it, it made it feel like Seth has always been there. So, of mm-hmm. course, the character did not exist last season. And I thought between that um, and the immediate bickering between him and Jessica, I mean, from the first lines of dialogue, they are fighting with each other in ways that people who've known each other a very long time and are very close could do. And so it's like we're, we are immediately led to believe Seth has always been there. Sorry, Ethan. I mean, it sounds that kind of bickering. So, yes, that bickering sounds very familiar to me. Um, <clears throat> ahem. Um, do you know? Um, do you know why Seth came about, Teach? I do not. Uh, illuminate um, it for us. Well, there's two sort of reasons. Um, one is, you know, they had this like I think I've mentioned this in earlier episodes that like every guest star sort of got a flat fee and there was no negotiating about it. And Claude Aiken's agent didn't like that. But the second was um, Lansbury thought that Ethan was too much of a roughneck and that a person as refined and educated as Jessica wouldn't really be friends with him. Isn't that snobby? Wow, that is pretty snobby. Like, <laughs> So now she gets Seth, who's a doctor. And so I think, you know, his um, him being we see this in this episode, right? So everyone in town is like Joshua Peabody, our hero. And he doesn't believe Joshua Peabody even existed. Mm hmm. Uh, so his skepticism, his focus on empirical science as a doctor, as a scientist, right? Investigate, test hypotheses. I think that kind of logic will ends up working really nicely as a friendship for Jessica, you know, who's a sleuth by nature. Right. Yeah, I agree with you completely. But I mean, really, the most important thing that happens in their opening exchange is he burns the biscuits. And given how awful they look, I can <laughs> I would not be surprised if they were absolutely inedible. In fact, I was watching it with my parents and like, yeah, I wouldn't eat those. We Appalachians take our biscuits very seriously. That is, that was their second scene together, but um, you clearly, yeah, clearly <laughs> take biscuits very seriously. But the first, the first thing we hear him, we see is when she comes to him because her back hurts, and he's instead of like being nice about it, he's like, "Well, I told you not to hang your storm windows, and you didn't listen." And I, and we also hear him giving, um, a very special brand of 1980s advice to a patient, which is basically like, go lie in the sun and get skin <laughs> cancer and it'll help you right. feel better. He says nothing about sunscreen. I mean, lying in the sun does help you, but as you say, like, you really need some sunscreen. But, you know, we were much more innocent in the 80s, we, you know, I guess. Really were. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> she should, though, she, however, she should steer away from the island where, you know, we just talked about in last week's episode where people get murdered for their jewels. So clearly, like, you know, <laughs> we need to be a little more cautious about what kind of travel advice we're handing out here. Yes. Please go lie on the beach for a while, but not in Brittany Bay. I just absolutely, I think this is such a great introduction to Jess and Sethica. 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 Yeah. There That's you go. The ship. Sethica. Their relationship. That's the ship. Um, it just, it feels like he's always been here. It feels like they've always been friends. It feels like we as the audience, you know, I remember when they first introduced Leo in the ballet episode, 
And they introduced him in a way where it's like we were supposed to think he'd always been around and it was just confusing. And I maybe because I grew up with Murder, She Wrote, but I don't feel that way. I feel like this is written so well that you just instantly believe like, oh, of course, they've been friends for 40 years and I've magically never heard about this Mm -hmm. guy. Well, and I think that's a product of two things. One, I think it's just how fully we're allowed to immerse ourselves in Cabot Cove as a setting, like because it's just so well established, both in terms of like cinematographically, because we always get like these nice shots of Cabot Cove from a distance. But also because we, you know, we get all the street signs and we, you know, it's a place we can inhabit. Maybe I just, maybe it's, a, you know, it's touching my small town roots. Maybe that's what it is. <laughs> but it's also the, the chemistry between the two characters is just so natural. There's an ease with which they engage with each other that is, you know, undeniable from the moment we first encounter them and continues on throughout their relationship. And so I think that both of those things help to contribute to that sense that they've always been this way, even if, you know, we also recognize that you know, Seth didn't exist last season. You know, I think that it's also important to note that this is also an Amos episode. And so as much as um, we see Jessica and Seth's relationship foregrounded, we also see Jessica working really intimately with Amos to figure out the body. And and then when the skeleton is um, being investigated, uh, somebody dumps a new fresh body into the place where it was found. So we have a real life time, a real time murder also to be settled. And Jessica is just sort of casually at the sheriff's station drinking coffee and marking on the chalkboard as if she's one of the deputies. Uh, and I really like seeing that interplay between her and Amos. There, again, that sense that, like, Ms. Fletcher has been around for years and always helped him with his work. Yeah, and I, I appreciated that, unlike some other episodes with Amos and Jessica, like, they're working more together than antagonists. And it I I found Amos, as you well know, I'm not Amos's biggest fan sometimes, but I appreciated that I wasn't quite as annoyed with him and his bluster mm-hmm. as I usually am. Um, and I think that it's because, as you rightly point out, they're so simpatico in terms of how they're going about this investigation, including the, the chalkboard, which I thought was a nice touch, too. There's also a number of episodes where we see uh, real antagonism between Seth and Amos. Um, especially like when Seth is spending time with Jessica, he gets really jealous if Amos comes over and tells him, mm-hmm. tells him there's been a murder and he needs Jessica, right? And Amos wants to eat their dinners and Seth's always like trying to get rid of him. Um, and this was a really nice one because it, it really was like the sort of the three of them. And especially in the subplot about the Vietnam protester, it sort of becomes the three of them, especially Jessica and Seth, but you know, Amos knows to sort of scheming to lie to the FBI so that this guy who did not commit murder and did not bomb a courthouse just was a protester and uh, maybe has been on the lam because he was falsely accused. Like they kind of scheme to get him off. And the FBI agent kind of is like, all right, it seems like you guys are really good friends. He can go. Right. So maybe we could pause here and just sort of elaborate because I think that there's, I think it's th- that whole subplot is really important for a whole host of reasons. So the pro- pro- the protester in question is one of the ones who's leading the charge against this high rise being erected in Cabot Cove. Although why one would erect a cab, you know, a high rise in the middle of nowhere, Maine is, a, is an open question. But, and then he is being investigated because it's believed he might have committed a bombing of a courthouse during the Vietnam War. And then the FBI shows up, who's played by Chuck Connors, of all people, which, I mean, famous, famous for playing I the know, rifle. Right. Um, 
who has a far less significant role than I would have expected, um, given, you know, kind of how big of a deal he was at one That he's Chuck Connors? Yeah, like, you know, this this epitome of, you know, Western-style masculinity. I was really kind of surprised that he was, you know, not given more to do. But I also liked that, you know, this is one of those moments where Murder, She really kind of um, evokes a specific period of history where the Vietnam War is like, you know, it's not as it is for our generation, like history with a capital H it's like, you know, not even a decade ago at this point. So it's really interesting. One of those really interesting moments where like the recentness of prior historical moments is really kind of intruding on the story. Well, it was a decade ago. Cause this is now. Well, yeah, I guess 84. Yeah. But um, and we're, you know, the episode is a little bit confusing on that because at one point we're told that he's been on the run for 17 years and another point it's 14. But, um, yeah, I think you're right that the idea that it was, it's a close enough that someone's life could have been completely altered by their relationship to the war. Did they serve? Did they protest? Did they burn their draft card? Uh, and that's what we see from this character. And it's interesting that Chuck Connors is our FBI agent because he actually like marched in support of the Vietnam War. So there's something kind of fun about him being playing a character who's chasing a guy who protested the war. Right. And of course, you know, I mean, there is something very innately conservative about the kind of um, masculine persona that Chuck Connors, you know, epitomized within characters like the Rifleman. So it's, you know, it's it's definitely like, there's almost like a conflict of 80s ideologies at work in this episode in really interesting ways. So, you know, perhaps most emblematized by the fact that the murder victim is, of course, you know, that old standby and murder she wrote, a ruthless capitalist monster who is you know whose shortchanging of his construction projects has led to actual deaths and then is himself murdered like obviously we're not necessarily led to see that as you know the best solution to these kinds of people but it is really revealing that henderson wheatley is you know that kind of figure that we're so familiar with by this point in murder she wrote yeah and we didn't really talk much about um that sort of trope in the last episode where it doesn't really happen the, the murderer is someone who's trying to get ahead in the world, and that's what caused his murders. But definitely, I agree with you. I agree with you. I made the same note that in this episode, we're right back to that common theme that greedy capitalism um, must be stopped. And the the woman Dell, who is our murderer, um, tells Jessica, you know, she knew that the law would never catch up with him. She kept trying to stop him with legal means, and there was there's just no way to prove that what he's done has directly led to these deaths. And so she felt like murder was the only solution. It's really a total cozy, right? Because we don't actually see the murder. We don't see the violence. Uh, and her reason for murdering sort of restores justice to the world because he was a bad guy. So it's kind of – and, like, nobody actually grieves over him. The, the morning his body is discovered, everybody's like, mm, nobody's crying, nobody's sad. So it, it really does have that cozy sensibility that um, the killer just didn't want him to hurt anybody else. We just needed him to stop. Yeah, and it's revealing that even the for- construction foreman that, that Wheatley is employing also thinks he's a monster because he's not paying them. And, you know, it's actually, he's the one who gives Jessica the clue that it was um, Del Scott's brother who was killed in the accident in Pittsburgh, which leads her to, like, commit the murder. Um, can we talk a little bit about Meg Foster, who plays this character of Del Scott? Like, she is strikingly beautiful, and her eyes are almost unearthly blue. Like... I hate her eyes. The, well, that's what I'm saying. They're deeply unsettling. 
So she was the original Cagney, um, or Lacey. I always confuse them. And um, the one that, not Tyne Daly, the other one oh. replaced. Glass. And uh, in that ep- in that series, I love the way she looks. I think she looks really stunningly beautiful. But in this episode, it just started freaking me out, like especially with the blue eyeshadow. And then you, I always kind of wonder if she like actually blind. And it, it I don't know, it creeps me out. It reminds me of this episode of Star Trek where um, people got like zapped by some superpower and they got really smart and they had to wear these silver contact lenses. And it just it hurts my eyes every time they blink. I mean, I think that you're right. And I think that part, but what makes it so useful for this episode is because she becomes almost like an avenging angel, like, and that's kind of the role that she plays. Like, and I think that's (laughs) visually and narratively the case. I'm not sure that they intended necessarily that to be the case, but that's for me, the impact of these, you know, her kind of ethereal eyes and the other, you know, the, the fine cut beauty that she, you know, um, exhibits makes her feel like her, she reads that way to me, at least as a, as a viewer. Yeah, she's stunningly beautiful, I think. And as she, I mean, the reason that she ultimately, um, they got rid of her was, uh, they were worried that Cagney and Lacey felt too lesbian was one of the concerns. And which is mm. just laughable because like, it's so lesbian. Right? <laughs> like, no matter what you do to that of show, course. it's going to feel lesbian. Um, uh, but, um, and uh, God, like, why can I not think of her name? Like, she's my hero. Like, she's Michael's mom on Queer as Folk. What is her name? I'm oh, so embarrassed Sharon by this. Thank Sharon you. Glass. Like, she's more, I would argue, lesbian than Meg Foster. But also that I think um, she doesn't seem, like, tough enough to be a cop. There's something, like, really sensual and, like, very feminine about her. And I think that really works in this episode, again, to reiterate that this is a cozy mystery. Like, she's not... Mm-hmm an angry woman. She's not a violent woman with a temper. She's not a hardened woman. She's just like someone whose brother has died and she's in pain, you know? And I, I have no sense that she would murder again. Like we're, so, I, she, I mean, even Jessica is, just feels really empathetic toward her and she confesses quite easily, right? Like she's not even trying to hide it. Right. And I mean, what else has struck me about this character, she asks Jessica for some, like, commentary on the whole f- fiasco, because obviously Jessica being Cabot Cove's, like, most famous resident. And it's so interesting, their exchange, because Jessica essentially says, "I you should ask someone smarter than me. And it's just one of those moments where, like, Jessica's self um deprecation feels just just a little disingenuous like i don't think it's self-deprecation i, mean, I think she's just being modest like oh, well, she's okay, an author modesty, i let's mean put it that way well you and i talk about this a lot with like modern celebrity culture right like what's going on has to do with development and business and zoning she's not the mayor she's not in the zoning commission like she's just an author why would she be the appropriate person an author who also to- served time in congress that's true she did serve time in congress for a hot minute um but you know i think it's uh it's it's a nice bit of modesty on her part to say that is not my expertise and frankly i wish a lot of contemporary celebrities would say that about issues that was going to be my also my second part though i was going to say because we have literally just had this very discussion just the day before we we watched this episode about how we don't need to ask celebrity authors of you know she who will not be named um their views on every single subject because frankly we don't need it like there are people who are actually as jessica herself says experts in the subject that don't need you just say you don't need mine just because i happen to be famous so yeah that was going to be the second part of what i was going to say yeah but of course jessica does give in and grant the interview in order to catch her up in a lie that she told um and to prove that Mm -hmm. she's the murderer 
But I want to circle back to something you said earlier, because you were talking about Kowalski, the guy who works for Wheatley, and how he gave Jessica the aha clue. Um, and Kowalski is played by Ken Swofford, who is in 11 episodes of Murder, She Wrote. This is his first. And I just, I rem- I mean, he is Murder, She Wrote to me because I saw him in so many episodes. But I am disgusted by what happens to him <laughs> in this episode. So it's not moral disgust. It's like a physical disgust, you guys, because what happens is Jessica shows up to the construction site and he has a bloody hand. She's investigating a wheelbarrow that has blood on it, which is already gross. And then he offers her his bloody hand to help her stand up, which she takes. And then she takes the Kleenex out of her purse and is wiping off his blood. It is disgusting. And they talk a little bit. And that's when she reveals some things about Wheatley. Later, she finds out she she needs more information about Wheatley from him, and she suspects that perhaps he killed Wheatley because of all the stuff he's you know she's learning. So she comes back with this salve, which she pronounces "salve." I know. I thought that was weird too. <laughs> One of those beautiful Britishisms coming out, right? And they also say but basil comes- instead of basil. She did, and when she and Seth are arguing, she says basil. God bless her. I'm like, I'm like. And so does Seth. I'm like, that's not how Americans say this. It's not like, how Americans girl. say it. It's, and um, I would just like to point off. out that her own son, Anthony Shaw, was the dialogue coach. So fallen down on the job there, Tony. Um, but she she brings this staff to him that she's going to offer to put on his hand. Uh, and um, that's just disgusting. I mean, she's not wearing gloves. She's like rubbing cream on his open wound. By the way, she litters in this scene. It's just horrifying. And I'm so grossed out by these two encounters that I miss all the important clues that are being given in this conversation because it's just so physically disgusting. I did not pick up on this because I'm from, I grew up on a farm. And so (laughs) I'm not nearly as squeamish as Bridget is about these things. So I just need to put that on the record. It's a safety issue. You don't touch somebody else's blood. There's literally poop everywhere on a farm. So like I said, it does not. These poop doesn't have the same diseases as bl- bloodborne illnesses. Come on, this is medic medicine 101. You don't touch someone else's blood, right? Especially not in 1985. Can I just point that out? Well, that is that did occur to me also as I was watching this. There you go. So, really, what we're talking about is Murder has now veered into, despite its coziness, Murder is flirting with body horror. You heard it here first, like. <laughs> But for those of you who aren't um, as versed in American history, um, what we're referencing is 1985 was actually the year that the HIV test came out. Um, So this is the peak of AIDS epidemic uh, at the point where, you know, uh, contracting HIV is still a veritable death sentence. So people were learning, like, you should not have contact with other people's bodily fluids just for your own safety. And so I I can't help but think of that um, because it's contemporaneous to this episode as she's using a tissue to wipe this guy's blood off her hand. Barf. Right. TJ's, I can tell, like, God, I really hope she cuts out, like, six minutes of this whole sidelong <laughs> tangent about bloodborne illness. Anyway, um, we should also talk about John Aston because we haven't mentioned him yet, and he plays Harry, who's one of the townies in support of building the high rise. He's the one who sort of scooted it through the zoning commission. And of course, viewers know him as Gomez from From the Adams Adams family. family. 
I have to say, I just love John Aston. Like, anytime I see him in anything, whether it's the Addams Family, whether it's the Nanny, which he also made a brief appearance in, anytime I see him on the screen, I just can't help but both be joyous and filled with laughter just because he's just so good. Like, he's just the epitome of what I love about TV actors of this particular variety. Like, he's, you know, just slightly strange looking, but he, you know, has a a sort of panache with which he moves through the world that is just undeniable. Like, and he epitomizes this character so well. This kind of, I wouldn't say it's sleazy, but this kind of hucksterish, you know, Mm -hmm. get rich quick, you know, just kind of, you know, willing to do whatever it takes to get ahead in the world. I mean, he is kind of like an an avatar for 80s, the 80s, you know, Reagan mentality right here at Cabot Cove. And he's not a big businessman like Wheatley. He's just a small town guy who wants to make a fortune as quickly as possible, you know? And I think that he's just so well cast in this role and he knows what the assignment is and he does it with, with absolute, you know, purpose. Yeah, I really like this character, and this character will come back. I'm sorry, some bad things are going to happen with him, but... um, They are going to happen with him. (laughs) In this episode, he did not do anything wrong, um, other than just... Well, except for calling a a town meeting with a barely had... which it barely had quorum. Right. But he, you know, he's not the murderer, for instance. Um, In fact, it doesn't really even seem like he's much of a suspect, although he should be, because we learned that he sunk his life savings into this hotel project. Right. But um, yeah, he's super fun. And I think it's also, um, we're starting to populate Cabot Cove, right? So beyond Amos and Jessica, now we've got Seth. We're starting to see some other people in the town who will come back and we understand their relationship with each other. And I just think that's really helpful. Um, It makes it feel more real. Mm Mm-hmm. So as we're sort of closing in on the finale here, I want to talk a little bit about how like shoddy the police work is in the, and like the, both on the part of like Amos, but also on the, you know, the FBI. Cause basically they arrest this, the protester with basically what's circumstantial evidence and they act like it's, you know, they had him at the scene, which they don't really, like they don't have a lot of evidence to, you know, to really nail him on a conviction. But then even more importantly, the FBI just kind of gives up and is like, all right, you got me. Like, you've deceived me with this, you know, this human bone at the in the finale. And then he just sort of drives off. It was like, okay. <laughs> Wait, you need to explain that for people who okay, haven't seen so it. So, by the finale. So, they one of the ways they're trying to prove that the protester is not the bombing suspect is through x-rays and medical records. And it's a whole convoluted thing because they use one of the bones from the skeleton that's been found to say that, that was the the bomber and then even though that's that evidence doesn't really stand up to scrutiny because the bone in question is an arm bone not the leg bone that seth claims it is the fbi agent just drives off anyway and takes their word for it and i'm just like okay like (laughs) this is this is your federal government like law enforcement at work yeah well that's what i was that's what i was saying earlier you know the whole idea that he's like i don't i know that that's not the right bone i know you guys are lying about the skeleton um but he you seem like good friends that you'd stand up for this guy so he must be an okay guy peace out let you guys be and they're like are you kidding they're kind of like are you kidding and he's like i like to see justice done and so for him it's like there must be justice in letting the guy go because sounds like his friends didn't think he did it (laughs) This is the federal government. <laughs> Good work. <laughs> I mean, it's a lovely ending 
And, you know, and it's obviously played for laughs, but I'm just like, uh, this seems questionable at best. It does. It does. I also, you know, Amos too, uh, Amos thinks that David, um, the protester, uh, perhaps planted the skeleton at the construction site in order to stop construction because he's one of the people who was not in support of the high rise because he's an environmentalist. Um, but like, where would he have gotten a skeleton? <laughs> That's never really, I don't think Amos really thinks that through. And Jessica's like, you guys, this guy is a non like he, didn't support the Vietnamese, the war in Vietnam, because he doesn't like violence. Like, he's why would he have committed murder or bombed? Like, that's, you know, antithetical to his beliefs, right? So that's why she, you know, schemes with Seth mm-hmm. to get the guy, to FBI guy to leave him alone. But I don't know. The whole thing is wild. And we still don't actually know who the skeleton is. Right. That's the other thing. I was like, who is the skeleton? Like, so, the, so Jessica and Seth convinced the FBI agent that it's this other guy. They show him part of the newspaper. It's some guy who was participating in a civil, a revolutionary war reenactment, and then he ran off. And they're like, oh, this is his body. And by the way, he is the guy who committed the bombing. But that they all made up. And we also thought it was Joshua Peabody's skeleton. So is it from 200 years ago or is it from a couple of years ago? We don't know. It looks like Jessica immediately thinks it was the, a murder victim because there's a hole in the skull. So she thinks somebody hit it over the head. So someone's been murdered. We don't know when. We don't know by whom. It's never settled. You know, usually when we point out like these logical fallacies where like it's the main story that doesn't make sense. But in this case, the main story makes perfect sense. And it's the side plot that's like, what in earth? What on earth is happening right now? Like, it's wild. Yeah, I think it's the f- a function of like, there's like three different plots here, and they're all woven together. And so it, it just gets really messy. And ultimately, it doesn't matter, I guess. Nobody in town's grieving anybody. Nobody has a loved one that went missing, it seems. So it's like, I don't we don't know who the skeleton is. It doesn't matter. And they all, and you know, the final moment of the episode is them all laughing over the, the debate over Joshua Peabody's existence. Could it have been Joshua Peabody? Maybe. Maybe he doesn't exist at all. I mean, and also, I mean, just ha, on ha, a ha. purely scientific note, it's not that difficult <laughs> to determine the age of a skeleton, is it? Like, it's this is what I, I this was what I was struggling with. Okay, I don't know what forensic science looked like in 1985, but surely you can tell the difference between bones that have been in the ground for 200 years versus bones that have been in the ground for like 10, right? That was my assumption, and 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 I also want to add that like. Seth keeps picking up the bone by hand, no gloves, and waving it around. And I'm like, first of all, that's disgusting. And second of all, like, if this is like a 200-year-old skeleton, like, wouldn't it be more fragile than that? Like, at what point do the bones, like, you know, yeah, crumble? I don't know. I just – I have many questions. I, so many questions here. I mean, and I just have to say <laughs> that Bridget would be horrified to know that as a country boy, I have, in fact, touched bones with my bare hands from a field. Well, I've touched chicken bones with my bare hands. I mean, like, that I found just in the woods. Ugh, that's so gross. That is really gross. I just, need to, I just needed to put that out there. I don't want to talk about that, so I'm going to say something different. Um, David, our antique stealer slash Vietnam War protester, is played by Michael Sarazen, who is going to play Jacob Byler in the Amish episode. So those of you who are well-versed in Murder, She Wrote, it's not for a while yet, but if you know that episode, I think there's also something funny in that, that he's continues to play these guys who are sort of unfairly accused and they're nonviolent types. 
I wonder if it has to do with his like his appearance because he sort of has that wide-eyed, almost like Luke Hamill appearance, Mark Hamill? and that kind of less suggests you know a kind of innocence baked into his Luke Hamill, like Luke Skywalker, Mark oh, yeah, Hamill. Mark he totally Han- does. Yes, though. Yes, I've sorry. never thought about that, but now that you say it, he kind of does. Yeah, that was my first thought when I first saw him. It's, it's something sort of uh, innocent-eyed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that wide-eyed, blonde-haired innocence that you know is so appealing to the American imagination. The other wonderful thing about this episode is uh, in the course of trying to get David, you know, the FBI off David's case, Jessica goes to the town library and we learn that the librarian's name is Mavis. So that's a bit of trivia for us. Um, But she ultimately produces a couple of newspaper articles. And that's where we learn that the title of the town newspaper is, Teach? The Cabot Cove Gazette. Yes. Beautiful. Beautifully done. Well, that seems like a good place to end. I think we've done a pretty good deep dive into this episode. So as always, thank you all so much for joining us. I am your co-host of the Cabot Co. Gazette, TJ West. I'm Bridget Keys. And we will be back with you next week. Our theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nakarada, used under Creative Common License. You can find us on social media. We are the Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter.